Anxiety is to be human. <laughs> we are wired to survive. We want to seek threat and anxiety is our physiological reaction to that process. When we talk about anxiety, there are two pathways. One is the prefrontal cortex pathway. The other pathway is the brainstem pathway. And this is the trauma pathway. One of the most important factors that contributes to burnout is mindset. For me, it's not the working 18 hour days. It's if I'm in the must do more, should be, could be. That's the adrenaline and the cortisol that burns energy reserves. This is not warm and fuzzy. This is the opposite of, you know, woo-woo stuff. This is deep science and deep logic that says these strategies are going to change your life. Optimize performance through adapting your physical, psychological, and emotional state. Hi, it's Andrew, and welcome to another edition of the Performance Intelligence Podcast, the podcast about all things human performance. Dr. Jody Lowinger is an award-winning clinical psychologist, best-selling author, founder of The Anxiety Clinic, podcast host, keynote, and TEDx speaker. With over 20 years of experience in clinical psychology, Jody has made a significant impact on organizations, businesses, hospitals, and communities. Jody specializes in educating people about anxiety, and her best-selling book, It's a Cracker, got lots of dog ears on my bookshelf, The Mind Strength Method. It offers practical hands-on guidance to empower individuals to effectively manage anxiety in their daily lives. Jody is on the advisory board of not-for-profit, Gotcha for Life. She also is on the advisory board for Streetwork, which is dedicated to mentoring homeless teens to turn young lives around. As a mother of three, Jody is passionate about equipping every adult, child and teen with the tools to manage anxiety and to thrive, bridging the gap between parents, educators and the younger generation and connecting on a deeper level. Dr. Jody Lowinger, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. We're in here. We've been talking about this for a while, but you and I have both had conference season in Australia, which is October, and I see you've been on platforms and planes and talking all around the place. So we've got we've got each other. We're in the same place, the same <laughs> so time. So good. Finally. Now, a rough frame for today, because when we do get together, we like to talk. So I've given us a little bit of a guideline, a bit of a structure. Number one, what is anxiety? And the difference between anxiety and being anxious and some of the stats around that. Two, your story. Pulling the thread on your story. I didn't know that. Like why you're so passionate about this. So I can't wait to share with the audience. Three, the mind strength method and the four steps. I love a step or two. And four, HFA, high functioning anxiety. I have read a lot about this in preparation for the interview. You've given me some insight. I'm amazed at how many people, especially some of the celebrities and high performers, have this level of anxiety. So let's go back and first of all, for people who've tuned into this, either listening or now we're also on YouTube, what is anxiety? Let's just start with that, the definition. Anxiety is to be human. <laughs> it is our physiological reaction to perceived threat in our environment or threat in our environment. So we are wired to survive, which is a good thing, yeah? So inherently, if we take it to a neuroscience level, we want to seek threat in our environment to protect us. And anxiety is our physiological reaction to that process. And it can play out in different ways. It can play out in ways that help us. So in the case of a real threat, we want to kick into that fight or flight neuroscience and 
protect ourselves, but it can also respond to worry stories around fear of something bad happening. And so that physiological reaction takes hold. And then the byproduct of that is all sorts of behaviours that get in the way of living our life and flourishing and thriving. So anxiety we hear so much more about now and like you've got a, a whole business. So you've got your <laughs> business where you speak and coach and teach and very similar to me, you're a much better looking version of me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, but thank you, you. You have the two practices. So you have your bigger business you know, where you, you're doing programs and then you really specialise in anxiety and we will talk about why soon. But that difference between being anxious and having anxiety, interesting, I was talking to one of our team, Shannon, earlier today. She said, I'm really looking forward to listening to this podcast. And that's one of the insights Shannon had, because when she said, uh, one of her friends always says, I feel anxious. Does she have anxiety or is she just feeling anxious? So can you can you sort of double click on the, the difference between the two? Absolutely. So when we have anxiety, it is our physiological reaction to perceive threat. As I mentioned earlier, it's about the adrenaline and the cortisol in our system to help us to make sure that nothing bad happens. And this can be a good thing in life and we seek certainty, we seek control, and it's the capacity to move out of worry into problem solving and action planning around what's in our control, which enables us to leverage that anxiety or that adrenaline and channel it in helpful ways. So this is what we all experience to various levels of severity, uh, whether it's mild, moderate or severe. And when it tips into what's called an anxiety disorder is when it is getting in the way of our ability to live our life and flourish and thrive. So some of the hallmark features of that is avoidance. So fear, suffering or avoidance over an extended period. So as an example, if a person had a worry story about fear of being judged negatively or social anxiety in that situation, they might start to avoid going to parties or if they have performance anxiety, they might start to avoid speaking in front of their team. And so that's getting in the way of their capacity to flourish and thrive in their personal and professional life. You mentioned a, a, a very interesting teaching term, a worry story. Talk to me more about that. So when we talk about stories, it can be family of origin, it can go way back. So I'm assuming a lot of this would come from childhood or is it interactions that create that inadverted commas worry story? It's a great question. We are quite, even though we're quite primitive and simple as human beings, we're quite complex in the factors that can contribute to some of these aspects in our life. We are a byproduct of nature and nurture, nature being the genetic makeup that we have, our physiology that we're born with, and nurture being our environmental circumstances. So when we talk about anxiety, if we bring it to some fundamental principles, there are two pathways. One is the prefrontal cortex pathway, and understanding neuroscience is very helpful in understanding anxiety and understanding how to bring ourselves out of that and realign to flourishing. The prefrontal cortex is where our thoughts, our beliefs, our perception of the world is uh, evolving from. And so there can be, I like to talk about worry stories because that helps us to kind of grasp it and get some distance from it because our worry, our anxiety oftentimes occurs around certain themes and we can take it to a deeper level to understand those themes. And I'll mention that in a second. So the prefrontal cortex pathway taps into the hijacking amygdala, which is our control center for the fight or flight reaction. So that's one pathway. And our worry thoughts can be 
driven by our environmental experiences, or we can just have an antsy, a feisty amygdala that we're born with, right? And it likes to play up and it likes to so take over. Some people over. just have a jumpy amygdala. Is a it, jumpy amygdala, And, right? and uh, is neuroscience or with the fMRI, is that how you, can you measure the jumpiness of your amygdala? Yes, absolutely. You can measure the amygdala, you can measure the efficacy of interventions such as meditation, mindfulness, to counteract that jumpy amygdala, the efficacy of certain evidence-based practices to enable the pathways to quieten that process. The other pathway that does contribute to a predisposition to more severe anxiety is the brainstem pathway. And this is the trauma pathway. And the challenge of this is if we have trauma through our life experiences or even secondary trauma through our parents' life experiences so that vicarious trauma through other people's experiences, it can lead to a pathway that bypasses our cognitions to some degree. And so there can be triggers in the environment that says, I'm feeling anxious, I want to avoid, I want to attack. You know, aggression is one of the many faces of anxiety, which is oftentimes unrecognized. And there can be a sense of, I don't know why I'm feeling this way, I just feel this way. And so what we want to do is when there is trauma, uh, engage scientifically supported strategies to intervene to help people to quieten or dissolve that pathway. And what I love to share with the individuals I interact with, whether I'm on a keynote stage or working with organizations or wherever it might be, is help people to move into messages of hopefulness and empowerment. Because not only is anxiety part of our human condition and common to us all to various levels of severity, however, uh, as well, it's with the right evidence-based strategies, people can flourish and thrive. So anxiety is a very helpable experience. I don't say a treatable condition. I say a helpable experience because we want to smash stigma and shame and help individuals to recognize that there it is not weak to feel these things. It is part of human predispositions to experience these. Hey, it's me. Just a quick note, I'd love you to subscribe to the Performance Intelligence Podcast. And I know you probably hear this on so many other podcasts and like me, you switch off. But can I ask you to please go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. And while you're there, extra bonus, leave a rating and review. That's it. Now let's get back to this week's episode. My two initial observations. One, I love your articulation and the thoughtfulness you've given around language. And, and you just sort of roll the words off. You've spent a lot of time thinking about this, haven't you? This is not just something you made up on the way here this morning. <laughs> well, let's say my wrinkles are a bit of a giveaway. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, it is lovely to hear the language, the thoughtfulness that has gone into it. And even just framing it as a story because we can change narrative, we can change story. Thought number two I really like the way you've defined that. I haven't heard it defined with those two different pathways. Now, here's the nerdy exercise physiologist jumping out with this next question. When Dr. Tom Buckley and I work with an executive, a lot of it, the testing we do is physiological. And I've been wondering, how do we test cognitive function? Yeah, we do questionnaires, but we'll do a whole blood profile, right? We get DHEA, the precursor to testosterone, vitamin D. We're looking at all these metabolic pathways. We'll put an ECG on, so we look at sympathetic versus 
parasympathetic. Now, it is body-brain, right, through, through the vagus nerve. But do you get people or is there a test you would get to people? Like, let, let's say an executive comes and sees you and I'm te- getting totally off script, which I, st- I gave us a frame, Jody, and I've already gone <laughs> off in the first 10 minutes. Let's talk for 10 <laughs> hours. That's all yeah. good. But is there a test that you use or you would advise using for someone who really does want to get the optimum cognitive function? What a question to start in the first 10 minutes in a podcast, right? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, I, I think that science drives us, right? And so it is about evidence-based strategies as well as staying in your lane and seeking out the power of holistic well-being. And uh, so I think it's the power of the team in seeking those tests. So it wouldn't necessarily be tests that I would subscribe. It would be seeking out other professionals, other experts, neuroscientists, people who really deeply specialise in these areas to engage in those tests. Right. So when someone presents to you, you would then do assessment based on your training as a clinical psychologist. 100%. And then if you go, whoa, this is outside my lane or I'm feeling I'm getting a bit stretched, then you would outsource. And what I absolutely love is leading edge technology. And for me, one of my core values is, uh, or two of my core values is curiosity and continual improvement. And I recognize in this incredible world that we're in, there's new technology all the time for all of the, you know, anxiety, high performance, well-being, flourishing. And so it's about the joy of continual learning is is what's core to my expertise is saying it's never enough, right? I'm, con- I'm like a sponge, constantly excited about learning more. Well, it's never enough because I can imagine your phone, your email, your website is overloaded. We are just, the anxiety is everywhere. I was going to say it's an anxiety epidemic, but it's not an epidemic. It's just part of our lives, and I don't want to sensationalise. I think you're adapting my language even as we have this conversation. From your view, because you've also worked in Macquarie Bank, so we'll sort of rewind a little bit. You've worked as a consultant. Uh, You've worked in industry, so you've experienced what it's like to be in that not nine to five, is it? It's 7am to 7pm. We've had COVID. We've got hyperconnectivity. From your view, though, why is anxiety so prevalent? If we take it to a deeper level, the prevalence is the byproduct of the uncertainty that we exist in. And we are wired to want to be able to predict and control our environment to prepare for threats and to protect ourselves. So we are biological beings existing in an ever-increasing technological world where the rate of change is astronomical and it's Uh, increasing exponentially. So anxiety is our struggle with uncertainty. And that's the bottom line. You know, it's so much deeper than working 24-7. Yes, that is moving away from what our biology, what our physiology requires for sure. However, the nature of the world that we exist in is out of line with the nature of the world that our human beings are designed to exist in. So uncertainty triggers anxiety. And when we think about it in a corporate context and a corporate high performance context, the uncertainty leads engaging in suboptimized behaviors. 
they cluster around fight behaviors because perceived threat is driven by a fear of uncertainty and we want to reinstate control. But when we are existing in a situation where we don't have control, we tip into fight or flight and because it's perceived threat. So behaviors cluster around fight behaviors, which are aggression, defensiveness, finger pointing, blame, you know, water cooler talk, gossip, all of these are representations of those fight behaviors, flight behaviors, procrastination, avoidance. But the primary cluster or the, the, the other cluster alongside these is a need for certainty and control. Perfectionism, which the the other side of perfectionism is procrastination and reassurance seeking, overchecking, not delegating. So in a corporate context, when you can understand anxiety for what it truly is and understand the toolkit of how to move out of that, this is why these sorts of areas, anxiety as expertise, is not a warm and fuzzy. It's not a bolt on to high performance. It is front and center to enabling people to move into high performance and to thrive. I like the link between the two because you're not then stigmatizing, oh, he's got anxiety or she's got anxiety. Hey, you can use this as a superpower. And I'm going to hold back because we're going to talk about that separately. <laughs> a, one of the podcasts that I listened to in preparation for this was Mamma Mia. That was a good podcast. Was, yeah. that, was that fun to do that? That was super fun. That that hit number one, that episode. I, I saw that. That was over the – like the ratings were phenomenal. Wizard, we got big shoes to fill. This lady <laughs> has been number one rating on Mamma Mia podcast. Do you feel anxiety on that wizard? A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> now you know what it is. It's a fight or flight response or I don't think it's the trauma pathway. See, we're already changing our language. So on the Mamma Mia podcast, you said – the underpinning core is a fear of uncertainty. What if something bad happens? Normally, it concerns three topics. Number one, health. Two, performance-related. Or three, social situations. It's normally in high-functioning individuals who want to do well. So even that frame that you've normalized this, so you can be a high-functioning individual and have anxiety, and getting some tips and strategies around that is really important. You said, we can't stop worrying, but it is about picking and choosing our thoughts. Mm, 100%. And, you know, the the methodology that, that I've created through the experience that I've had and over decades, I'd say, it's about recognising the two pathways in this. One being a clinical pathway where it's picking and choosing and aligning to things that enable human flourishing in your personal life. And the other is picking and choosing, moving out of fight or flight drivers into aligning to your mission, to your purpose, to your strategic goals and your corporate values. Oh, you said the P word. If you want to get me excited, talk about purpose. Yeah, 100%. Uh, that makes sense. Totally when you can anchor someone in purpose, it puts everything into perspective. Yes. And then you go, hey, this is going to be stressful. This is going to stretch me. But when you're grounded in that, you know, we know the research, people with a clearly articulated purpose, number one, they live longer. So if you want to live longer, have a clearly articulated purpose. Two, they bounce back from adversity better. Three, they end up getting paid more money because they are tapped into something they're really passionate about. So I think we could have a whole separate podcast on purpose and anxiety. Hey, just to round out the definitions – how, how do you diagnose someone to say they've got anxiety? Is it DAS-21 or do you use some other scale? DAS is a great one for a an overview of indicators to say if there are certain areas where 
um, there are hotspots or things to look out for, but it is a thorough assessment around an interpersonal assessment as well as using diagnostic tools. The fundamental feature is the extent of avoidance in a person's life and the extent of suffering in their life as diagnostic indicators. And so it's I'm not a mainstream clinical psychologist. I You're the most positive clinical psychologist <laughs> or one of the most positive clinical psychologists I know. Well, I And look I, and, and to all the other clinical psychologists I have as friends and those that listen to this, please keep listening. But you know what I'm saying, because when you work in that field, you can be focused on what's wrong or can be mm. more of a problem focus. But I yes. see you and your method, you're so much more on skills. 100%. I'm on the reason I said I'm not a mainstream clinical psychologist, even though I've had a boot camp of clinical training. So probably you can count on on your fingers and toes the number of people who've had the level of clinical training I've had. But I am very rare to use the term disorder and I don't feel comfortable in that context because I want us to recognise that we are all in this together. It is very much about our common human experience and when we can help people to recognise if you are a multi-billionaire and a founder of a global multinational, or if you're a parent that's experiencing challenge with your kids and teens, or if you're a five-year-old, the fundamental principles of humanity are the same. And so when you can take it to that deeper level, which anxiety talks to, anxiety helps me to understand our primitive drivers at a very deep level. And human behaviour is, when you take it to that level, really helpable inherently. So my optimism and the messages of hopefulness and the reframing of anxiety as a superpower is built on decades of work at the coalface of mental health practice with thousands and thousands of people who experience extreme anxiety. And everybody in my experience is inherently helpable and deserves to seek out the help that they need and deserves to feel proud of who they are, you know. And the key element here is clarity on the heart-driven pull towards, clarity on what they deserve to recognise in order to enable them to flourish and thrive. And when you can build the clarity around that extra pathway, around that heart-driven pathway, it becomes a wonderful alternative out of the fight or flight pathway. So instead of, and, and you know, this is core to leading edge evidence-based methodologies. This is on the back of, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, thank goodness, who have been deeply entrenched in science and research and the magnificence of this continual world of improvement. But these strategies will really help human beings to flourish. And so long as it's scientifically supported strategies, whether it's medication or meditation or other evidence-based protocols, we bring together whatever works for a human being. The other 
factor that's absolutely core to this is respecting the power of the mind and the body and recognizing the importance of holistic well-being to enable people to flourish and thrive. This next question is as a father of a teenage daughter and uh, my eldest, Michaela, and I'll send this to you, Mumu. She's in Copenhagen at the moment on exchange. So 15-year-old has spread the wings. I'm so proud of her. So she's gone over. She's with her host family. Uh, we spoke yesterday, uh, Sophia, our little three-year-old, like, Mumu, when are you coming home? So it's trying to explain to a three-year-old that context of time. You, know, you go to the airport, like you, I'm away a lot. might be a night or two. So Sophia's trying to work out when Mumu's coming home. That's another story you might be able to help me with. <laughs> But Michaela's friends, we were talking about this before she left, and that's why I want to send this to her because I'll be open and I won't mention the names. But she said, Dad, it's like there's a condition off with some of my friends, that someone's anxiety is bigger than the other person's anxiety or someone else has got a disorder. And with Google, you can go and find as much evidence as you want. Do you see a lot of that amongst teenagers as well? It's now It's this condition off where, where we're so much more open and accepting talking about stress, anxiety, depression. I grew up in country New South Wales in Dubbo. So if someone said, oh, I'm stressed, be harden up, champ, you know, go play footy. It was totally, totally disconnected from emotions. Is there too much amplification on this now? Is that some of the problems with our teenagers that it's almost a competition to see how many conditions you have? It's a question that has many components to answering that. I certainly would not want to move away from open dialogue around mental health challenges. And it's really important to lead the narrative as loving parents. I have three children of my own and, uh, you know, with all sorts of busyness in their life and complexities and magnificences and challenges. And it is about keeping that dialogue open because teenagers, children will talk and will compare. And the other element to this is what they are privy to on social media. And so conversation is critically important and as parents, the responsibility to lead the narrative because they will hear all sorts of things and see all sorts of things and we cannot avoid that. So I think if we move it into a space out of being problem focused and being in solution mode, it's saying, what can we do to ensure that our children are equipped with the tools to know what is best practice, to know what is appropriate from what is inappropriate? Yeah, that, that's helpful because as a parent, like the, the number one goal we have is that our kids are functioning, that they flourish. Mm -hmm. It's that balance, isn't it, sometimes between needing them to get a bit of resilience and a bit of scar tissue. So I struggle sometimes. Like, when do I lean in? When should I let them go? Do you struggle with that? Like, you've got three kids or are oh, you yeah. just this superpower and you just got it all totally nailed? <laughs> you want to come and see my life? It is a constant struggle. It absolutely is a constant struggle. You know, my children are very involved in so many things and they have that desire to be the best that they can be as well. And, you know, if we talk about the superpower of anxiety, you know, it is about this double-edged sword of recognising the values that underpin oftentimes people who experience anxiety, values of care, values of kindness, passion to make a difference, deep sense of empathy, deep analytical mind. And all of my children have this. And I'm 
just absolutely thrilled to bits that they have this. And so these are inherent superpowers. However, the double-edged sword creeps in is, you know, worry about the world, worry about various things, wanting to make sure that everyone is safe and well. And so, of course, given this and whether it's the 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 nature or the nurture my three children have a lot of this stuff i have a lot of this stuff you know and so it's about how you can lean into conversation asking it's much the same you know when i'm doing keynotes with corporates i use parenting analogies all the time and when i'm working with parents and working with schools i use corporate analogies all the time it is about that two-step process step one is validation you know moving out of judgment is a superpower the capacity to recognize judgment as a as an unhelpful suboptimized mental process it's a version of fight or flight and it creates blind spots the capacity to move out of judgment and move into active listening and validation is step one and then the superpower of the open-ended question with your end goal in mind so if I want to facilitate my children into moving into strategies that are scientifically supported to help themselves it will be following that process and curtailing my hijacking amygdala that says I want to take their pain away you know (laughs) I want to protect I want certainty and control that's not going to help in this process do you have a religious background no so i went to a catholic school and i feel like at the moment i'm uh, seeing father and uh forgive me father for i have sinned in church you go and tell the father the priest your sins and they'll say five hail marys and be a good person and your sins are absolved so as a frame forgive me father i feel i've sinned i'm a bit judgy as a person yeah yeah yeah. Uh, my partner may have had a nickname for me a while ago that was Judgy McJudgeville. Just just maybe, but just making that stuff up, right? <laughs> I love this. Am I allowed to call you that sometimes? Uh, yeah. <laughs> if you see me judging, yes, yes. Well, this is just a podcast for me bringing my family into it, isn't it? Yeah, so I, I am working on trying to be less judgmental. Mm. But interesting you say mm. that that is also a form of fight or flight. It's one of those ones that hijacks us right? And it's the superpower. There's lots of superpowers, but one of the key superpowers is self-awareness, as you know. And being self-aware around judgment is really important and really challenging because it hijacks us. And the challenge with judgment is oftentimes caring people who have a passion to make a difference extend that judgment inwards, And that can tip into anxiety because we're in fight or flight, we're in internal judgment, which is basically the same as self, I use the term self-flagellation a lot. And somebody said to me, what does flagellation mean? You use that a lot. It's basically whipping ourselves and constantly in that not good enough, not good enough headspace. So oftentimes judgment can go both ways. We can judge inwards and we can judge outwards. And if we think about those three areas of struggling with uncertainty, social anxiety, performance anxiety, health anxiety, but in a corporate space, predominantly social and performance anxiety, the whipping or the judgment is fear of being 
judged negatively. Am I good enough? They don't think I'm good enough. I'm not good enough. And performance anxiety, what if I make a mistake? Um, I did make a mistake. It wasn't good enough. So worry about the future, rumination about the past. This is why the power of mindfulness is, is so very helpful because it keeps us focused in the present. It's a wonderful antidote for worry and rumination. And so it's about noticing, am I getting caught up in self-directed judgment or also judgment of others. I think there's a lot of people listening to this going, hmm, there might be some lessons I can learn from that. I want to pick up on hard-driven pathways. Digging into your story, it's fascinating. So can you take me back as a young girl? What was life like growing up for you? And why why did you become so interested in anxiety from such a young age? Mm. I have a mother who is deeply traumatised through being born into war, being born into trauma, being separated from her mum for close to a year, being hidden and uh, threat of threat of death. And so we're talking about World War Two. World War Two, and so she evolved in extreme trauma and had parents who had most of their siblings, you know, my my grandfather had most of his siblings um, murdered and witnessing murder and just complete displacement. And so if we fast track to me as a child with a mum who was in trauma and no understanding really of trauma or therapy or that process. So pushing it down, pushing it down, but experiencing a lot of anxiety. I um, grew up in an environment where it was a need for certainty and control myself. So, and often, you know, people who I, who I work with who have experienced trauma, sometimes this can play out as adults who actually do have the superpower of outstanding performance because it's this driver of I have to be good enough. I have to have absolute control because uh, uncertainty is terrifying. And so that's the trauma pathway. So growing up in this context of a mum who was caught up in a lot of anxiety, I became a parent- like, like we look at COVID and displacement and working from home, but you, when you're growing up, so um, Czech Republic is your, your family origin and the atrocities that happened back then and concentration camps and seeing people murdered and like not having family members around you, that's deep trauma. Can you rewire that or is that just something you have to learn to live with and, and try and accept, hey, that's happened, mm. I need to move forward? You can 100% rewire that. Trauma therapy works. And this is so important to recognize whether it's whatever the form of trauma. And, you know, there's the, the concept of big T trauma and little t trauma. I, I think that trauma can be quite subjective and we pay respect to the subjectivity of a person's experience. So we can have an individual who 
was bullied in primary school or high school and they might go on to experience adult social anxiety based on childhood bullying. Or we can have a child who experienced standing up in a classroom and giving a talk and the teacher said in front of the classroom that the talk was dreadful or some children whispering in the back of the room. So then as an adult, they go way back to that. And every time they get up and present in a meeting, big, large or indifferent, they go back to that kid and that fear. 100%. And so we want to be respectful to a person's subjective experience and recognise that these things can play out as a trauma pathway, whether it's something horrific to the extreme or something smaller. They can still play out as trauma pathways. And so treatment for trauma, evidence-based treatment, turns lives around. I work with individuals who have experienced trauma, whether it's on the battlefield, you know, elite military, or whether it's people just wanting to live their life and not experience social anxiety. This is all helpable. As a young girl, as a young woman, before studying, before working with thousands of people, before doing the wonderful work you do, you didn't have these frameworks. How did you cope as a young girl? So you would have seen that your mum was, was she sad, anxious? How did it show up in her behaviour? And then how did you adapt or what did you do to try and support her? Well, there was a lot of love in our in my childhood, a lot of love in, in my environment. And so it's sort of being there, leaning in, pro-therapy, pro-psychology, you know, mum engaged in therapeutic processes. So that is great. So I suppose what I had from a young age is a framework towards, a positive framework towards therapy as helping. Were you ever going to do anything other than study psychology? Like when you were young, did you want to ride equestrian? Did you want to be a mermaid? Or were you at a young age just wanting to work in this field? It's really interesting that you ask because I had no thoughts of doing psychology. Really? <laughs> so well, you know I, what I was going to do originally? What were you going to do? Sheep and wool officer. Because oh, my dad, go. Trev, was a sheep and wool officer with a department. of It doesn't even exist now as a job. So I was going to be a sheep and wool officer when I was 10. I can remember saying that it was 10 years five that when I grow up I want to be a sheep and wool officer like my dad so I'm very different pathway to a sheep and wool officer (laughs) well I'm uh, you know my my curiosity wants to know a lot more and I'm used to being on the interviewing side of the table so yeah well we're going to talk about that then because you have a podcast and I want to ask you at the end of this the experience because I find when I get interviewed it's a different experience as well but to come back I'll, I'll keep us on topic so yeah what did you want to do when you when you grow up so art was my thing I love drawing I love painting I am passionate about creativity and so and I did a lot of creativity my mom is also passionate about painting and drawing and so there was a lot of um, creativity in my childhood and I did 
um, work experience at George Patterson Advertising. I was very ambitious right from a young age. And I thought that I'd be this big time art director in advertising, you know, doing all the building relationships and stuff like that. So I did three unit art for my HSC major work. I topped the state in art and uh, absolutely loved it. In, ironically, I did my major work on emotions in children, and it was Your a major artwork. Major artwork was Ooh, on multi. Can we go deeper there? Yeah, Weirdest, yeah, exactly. So I had a a calling in that direction. So, but I didn't recognise it at the time. So Were you expressing your emotions through the artwork or was it projection with other kids or was it a bit of both? Probably all of the above, you know, deep empathy, deep affiliation with people's emotions. We could call it hypervigilance to people's emotions because emotions probably represented threat to me because of seeing the suffering that my mum experienced. So certainly a hypervigilance to emotions and uh, understanding the impact that that has, understanding the impact of a need for certainty around emotions, let's say, and wanting to help people, wanting to take other people's pain away. That avenue, perhaps a cathartic release, I don't know, you can psychoanalyze me. But I did this series on emotions in children and absolutely loved art and uh, started doing a Bachelor of Design in Visual Communications and with a view to getting into advertising. Design is very different from art. Design is producing for others. Art is kind of producing what's in your heart. So design was not my calling. Crashed and burned with design, but ironically, I work a lot in the creative space now, helping phenomenal individuals because my passion as a high-performance coach is helping outstanding individuals to be even more outstanding. I think your ideal brief would be this eclectic, challenged artist who's got beautiful artwork, but there's so many thoughts and ideas going in their head. Yes. That's your perfect blank canvas. Uh, absolutely. The superpower of creativity, the double-edged sword of creatives. Let's talk about Australia's or, the, or, or globally's the top chefs around the world. You know, there's a fine line between obsessive compulsive traits, Olympians, let's say, um, who, who this is the people I work with, the fine line between obsessive compulsive traits and OCD. It's only a problem if it's a problem. So obsessive compulsive traits might be values driven that says, I am going to ensure that I dot my I's and cross my T's and practice and hold myself to a really high level of accountability for high performance. I'm not self-flagellating. I'm not in fight or flight. I'm in passion and purpose. However, if it starts to encroach in, I must have certainty and control in order to be good enough, that's the fine line where it tips into those suboptimized behaviors. 
Hi, it's Angela Poon. I'm thrilled to share some exciting news about the new venture Andrew and I have been working on together. Over the past five years, we've been managing two separate businesses, andrewmay.com and strivestronger.com, which has led to some confusion in the market. So to streamline our offerings and make it easier for our clients to engage with us, we've taken the best of both worlds through our learnings over the past few years, delivering large-scale programs to our corporate clients, and we have created the Performance Intelligence Academy. Based on invaluable feedback from our clients, this new offering provides a much clearer, scalable, and more comprehensive solution. Now, our approach begins with an assessment of both the physical and psychological energy through our Live Life score, as well as an evaluation of mental skills to establish a baseline through our mental skills calculator. From there, our performance toolbox serves as a personal coach in your pocket, providing resources and tools to enhance well-being, boost productivity, and develop leadership capacity. In this toolbox, we have engaging micro lessons on influencing, coaching, energy optimization, personal productivity, and mental resilience. Our platform offers access to engaging webinars, community pages for networking, and a wealth of templates and learning resources. In addition to our digital offerings, we also specialize in hosting engaging events, including keynote presentations and workshops featuring a diverse range of presenters to keep participants energized and engaged. If you're looking to elevate the productivity and well-being of your team, we invite you to reach out to us. Whilst our new website will be launching in the coming months, you can inquire for more information through andrewmay.com. Stay tuned for further updates. Exciting things are on the horizon. So watch this space. I really think, I really feel like I'm in therapy with you in the moment. <laughs> I, I have Would you like to be my client? <laughs> this is working for me on multiple levels. I'm, I'm loving the conversation. I love the rigor and the frameworks and, and you're a good teacher, okay? You don't get up on stages around the world unless you can teach proper. But also what, what I love about a really engaging conversation, you can't help but go N equals one. Ha, huh. yeah, I am judgy, McJudgy. Ha, huh. that's a really good way of explaining the two pathways. Ha, yeah. huh. I totally get obsessive compulsive traits and I, and I do know the difference from my training. So I've studied psychology, but not a practicing psychologist, studied coaching psych. It's very different between obsessive compulsive disorder, but in preparation for this interview, it's fascinating looking at high functioning anxiety. Selena Gomez, Sean Mendes, Oprah Winifrey, Lady Gaga, Michael Phelps, you mentioned Olympians. There's a fascinating podcast with Michael Phelps and Grant Hackett. Have mm. you listened to that? No, with, but I'd love to. With Tim Ferriss and it is you just listen to everything you're talking about with high functioning anxiety, those two. Not manageable though. So if that, that that blend you said between being super competitive and being perfectionist, they had the blend wrong. I don't think there was much joy with either of their careers. And when both of them finished, they crashed, right? They both openly had depression. It, it's in the paper. Both of them have had incidents in public about arguments and it's all played out in the public eye. Uh, Naomi Osaka, another athlete, Jonah Hill, Prince Harry, Stephen Colbert, the list goes on. So there are so many people who we look at incorrectly thinking, oh, they're famous, they must have all that shit together. No, it's this anxiety that's driving a lot of those people. Now, whether they get the dance right to use it as, you say, a superpower or whether it drains them. Mm. Yeah, and it is it is getting that dance right and it is a fine line and it can tip over and then you bring yourself back and it tips over, you bring yourself back. And if we think about the byproduct of nature and nurture, some people have a physiological underpinning of a loopy, a mind that loops, a mind that loops on the what ifs, 
and that can be really challenging. And if we talk about the insidious nature of perfectionism, which is one of these things that people think is a high-performance habit, it's actually fear-driven because to be perfect, as you know, is something where we're constantly striving for more. The challenge is we are in a headspace of not good enough because if you have a belief that I must be perfect in order to be good enough, the worry story is fear of imperfection. And hypervigilance plays out. Our brain is wired to focus on the things that we feel threatened by. And so in this situation, our brain is constantly focusing in on our not good enoughs. So it is that constant self-flagellation. And what happens with that is you never feel good enough. And those words that we listen for, must, should, would, could, might, if. Yes. That, that's a frame. Yes. And also on perfectionism, for anyone listening to this, there is a real fine line between healthy competition. Healthy competition means I can make mistakes. Perfectionism, mistakes are bad. Yes. Healthy competition, it's not as dichotomous. Yes. Whereas a perfectionist, I win or I lose. I'm fit or I'm unfit. I'm flourishing or I'm feeling shitty. Life's not like that. No. And perfectionism is, as you talk to, that absolute around I must be perfect in order to be good enough. And so it is the threat reaction to that that tips into focusing on the not good enoughs, which this is where the imposter syndrome kicks in. Because if you're constantly in hypervigilance around you're not good enough. This woman is good. I, I, like I, my rough notes, and I've changed order. So for anyone who does have perfectionism, they'll know listening to this because I just went to number four in my frame: high functioning anxiety. Before we go to number three, managing anxiety. So I think there's some people listening to this having a little chuckle to themselves because <laughs> I just <laughs> mucked up their framework. But I, I had in my running sheet here: look, imposter syndrome. Because yes. it, 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 that's how it often plays out, isn't it? Because exactly. you're trying to be this person that you're not and then you're always, always trying to project. You're always on. You're never good enough. Oh, it's a draining way to live. Yes, and the brain is focusing on the not good enoughs and the byproduct of that is you never feel good enough. But you social feel media like tells fraud. us everyone lives these perfect lives. They're all jacked. They all look wonderful. <clears throat> what a load of rubbish. No one lives like that. Yep, and you can get a 50-cent airbrush app, right? You, you can. And, and back to one of the many open loops in this conversation with teenage girls, one of the things I've said to Moo Moo, darling, you have to be on social media because if not, you get isolated. But a lot of what you see there is not real. So just know that those images, they have been airbrushed and, and just just start to even in your brain, start to think, you know, what is normal for me? What makes me happy? And look at those images and just try and understand that that is not real and know that celebrities have makeup artists, personal trainers, they have personal chefs, they have all the work done possible, clothes tailored to make them look beautiful in that picture. So even just educating people around that can help. Very much so. And, you know, one of the hottest topics in, uh, the, in working with organisations and that I talk to is psychological safety and growth mindset. And because 
when you deeply understand what psychological safety enables in the context of high performance and the power of a growth mindset or a growth mindset culture in the context of high performance and the neuroscience that underpins it, it's all incredibly logical to help people to move out of fear drivers which keep them in their cosy little comfort zone and keep them suboptimized. And when you equip organizations or individuals with the tools to fully embrace psychological safety and a growth mindset, it is moving out of fear and into flourishing. It's moving out of fear or avoidance into high performance. I think we've got to go through those tools around managing anxiety in the four-step framework. But before we do, let's just back this truck up just a little bit. As a young girl, did you have anxiety? I exist with anxiety, you know, 100%. I would be my own avatar. <laughs> so that, that would be so powerful when you start working with someone to say that you've had it from a young age. So I, like I can tell knowing you, getting to know you and reading about you, definitely high-functioning anxiety. So yeah. you've used it though as a superpower. But when yes. you were a young girl, you, you wouldn't have known that. You just would have had this feeling, did you, of – restlessness or the hypersensitive hypothalamus or always thinking, always yeah. sensitive, always attuned? Yes, yes, definitely. And it, it plays out in challenging ways and it plays out in wonderful ways. And so this is my passion. My passion to improve lives on scale is built on deep empathy for the human experiences that people go through and a joy in the ability to help facilitate people out of anxiety into resilient action, high-performing action, flourishing and thriving. It lights you up, doesn't it? Like you just, you get your whole face, your whole body lights up when you talk about this as a, it's a calling. It's very much a calling. It's a change of the world calling. And I know that term used gets used a lot, but it truly is a change of the world calling. I exist in my heart space. My heart pulls me daily to work with people. So I work with individuals who can then help whole communities, whether it's CEOs or, or other people who are supporting other communities. And so, or at the anxiety clinic, you know, it's just a purpose around a joy in improving the lives of adults, kids and teens. And what lights me up is recognising that the right scientifically tool, uh, scientifically supported tools do does this you know people don't we don't need to be existing with this anxiety and epidemic you're getting multiple touch points and feedback from people who put this into practice and come back to you and see you and you see the changes do you ever have times though where you go ah oh, i'm looking at the diary so look back at my last month we've had a fun week this week but it's been busy really busy and the three weeks before that i had 15 talks you know october i said at the start is conference season do you ever get up on stage and it's taken us a while to get the podcast in because of our diaries do you ever have that moment though where you shift from hey this is my purpose this is my cause because there could be some people listening to this right now dr lowinger they're going oh for fuck's sake will you two shut up talking about purpose and passion and all this stuff i'm just sitting here in a seat of proverbial, I don't even know how to get started. Do you ever have those moments where you just go, ah, oh, this is bloody hard? Yes, 100%. Well, you know, 
as my own avatar, as my own person who who I seek out to help, you can get caught up in that self-flagellation. You can get caught up in the need to do more, should be more. This is what I grapple with is what to be purposeful in. You know, I was talking with your, your beautiful colleague Ange just now about being very uh, scrutinizing in what I choose to engage in because otherwise where do you draw the line when you've got a passion to support parents kids and teens and support CEOs and Olympians right you could be <laughs> all the time end up burning out well yes but you know what when I do when I talk about burnout one of the most important factors that contributes to burnout is mindset and so for me, it's not the working 18-hour days that leads to burnout. For me, it's if I'm in the must do more, should be, could be, you know, that because as as you know, Andrew, it's the that's the sympathetic nervous system, that's the adrenaline and the cortisol that burns energy reserves. So it's really about helping people to recognize what are the contributors to burnout. Are you maneuvering your life professionally and personally into a context where you have agency, where you have autonomy over your life? Because when you feel trapped contextually, that tips into a factor when we think about our neuroscience that contributes to burnout if you feel trapped because being trapped in a primitive context, a predator's stalking you, that's terrifying. So moving out of that empowered action towards agency is a very important factor to mitigate against burnout. Gosh, you're getting my little amygdala firing. I love a little bit of Albert Benjura self-efficacy. I'm getting all nerdy <laughs> with everyone as well. But when you get that agency or that ability to control this, yes, wonderful feeling. I want to do another podcast with you. So let, let, let's leave it on high-functioning anxiety. As we talk, did you have this? I, when I'm in a podcast, I run parallel ports. So I'm running a parallel port at the moment. Ha, <laughs> huh, that athlete I work with needs to listen to this. Ha, huh, that founder I work with needs to listen. Ha, huh, that person I work with. I'm just thinking a, a podcast on high-functioning anxiety. Yes. I'd love to do that. And yes. it may even be a Jewel will flip it rather than so me good. just interview you. We'll, we'll dance it out and bring some of my experience, some of your experience with research. I reckon that's going to be a cracker. It will be a cracker. It's been my dream to – well, I'm – yeah, I, this is why – and obviously this is not to do with the recording now. You and I, fucking amazing, okay? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> that's going to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, we'll leave it in. No, but you and I, fucking amazing. Honestly, what we can do – when we bring our expertise together, we can do well, just I, I, incredible I'm things. We are going to get you to start working. We're going to start working together and dip the toe in the market. And gratuitous plug for anyone listening to this right now. If you'd like to get Dr. Jody <laughs> Lowinger. We're back on the record. Oh, we're, we're on the record. If you'd like to get Dr. <laughs> Jody Lowinger and I in together to collectively fire up your organisation, 
reach out. We'll give details on how to contact you and people can contact us through the podcast. Hey, we're building some anxiety. Or, or no, I'll, I'll reframe that. We're building some positive anticipation because we've spoken about, number one, what anxiety is. Two, we've spoken about your family of origin and your mum's story. And I, I just know there's so much more to that. You, you did that in a beautiful frame. That that's deep, right? That's rich. So this is your calling, yeah, from your mom and the experience you had, and the impact you're having. I danced around. So for anyone who does have OCD, uh, they will have noticed that I went from four to three. We spoke about high functioning anxiety. We're going to come back and do a podcast on that, and we're going to do a lot more work together as well. And number four in our changed order, your book. Wow, cracker. Cracker. It's a really, really good manual. Wiz will put the details where people can order the book as well. There's a lot of science. There's good storytelling, but I love the framework. You know, I love three steps, four steps. Talk us through the four steps. So the four steps of the mind strength method, or really when we think about the evidence base that's uh, underpinning the mind strength method, it's leveraging clinical psychology, positive psychology, neuroscience, and building a high-performance mindset. So many evidence-based protocols that feed into it. The four steps really talk to who we are as human beings. Step one is awareness of your fight-or-flight-driven thoughts, feelings, and actions. What do you do when you're caught up in struggle with uncertainty in this perceived threat or in real threat? Because we don't want to hate fight-or-flight. It's there for a reason. Mm. It's there to help us in times of real threat. And again, my experience with athletes, when you normalise it and go, huh, there you are. One of the mindfulness techniques I'll, I'll use with athletes rather than getting out in front of the lights, especially when they're stepping up, so to play from their club to state or to go and represent your country, yeah. to normalise it and know that it is going to happen. You are going to get that little jump in your emotions. And when it happens, go, ah, oh, I expected this. So that normalising or that awareness of it can really help as a strategy. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. And recognising that all we want is certainty, and that's what tips us into that. So all of the normalizing. And, you know, what you talk to is the power of acceptance. And acceptance is one of the most fundamental things to dissolve the fight or flight reaction because you're literally taking yourself out of the boxing ring with the struggle with uncertainty. Also, like one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about this and you're interviewing me and flipping it again so we can we can swap the routines and you <laughs> can dig that. deep and ask me the pressing questions. I was a good athlete, not great, and I won multiple state championships but never went to the next level. I performed my best in low-key meets and when those nerves came, they took over me. So I didn't dance with them. I got you know, crunched by them. So that's one of the reasons I'm so passionate. So I teach this when you feel those nerves, know how to bring it back, know how to downregulate, know that it's okay to, again, to feel nervous and out of control and have this crazy monkey brain, but then the strategies to pull out of your back pocket, to put into practice, so then to bring yourself back. So that that performance zone, it's the optimum, isn't it? You want to be aroused enough that mm. you bring your best, but over-aroused, mm. uh, you don't bring your best. Yeah, and it's taking it to that deeper level in terms of the arousal of what is driving your behavior at any particular moment. So are you being driven by that sense of what if I stuff up here 
fight or flight drivers versus I value achievement, I value effort, I'm going to give my absolute best, I'm focused in on my goals as opposed to focusing in on your threats. And so it's that pivot out of threat drivers into values drivers that is the essence of the mind strength methodology and it's the essence of your capacity to leverage the adrenaline to put you into that optimized performance zone so if we take golf as an as an example because golf is a really good one to talk to this I don't play golf myself, but a lot of my clients say, can you help me with my golf form? And I'm like, hell yeah, of course we can do this, right? It's about, you know, the muscle tension that or the focusing in on where I'm tense is going to make you more tense. And it's the acceptance of that that takes you or it's the pathway to facilitate you more readily into that flow state and focusing on what you know, the muscle memory around focusing in on your goals that kicks in in such a powerful way. So high performance habits is one and the same as your capacity to master anxiety and thrive. So the mind strength method step one is really building awareness around these fight or flight drivers. Step two is awareness of your goals, awareness of your values, your strategic goals, your mission, your purpose, your capacity to build clarity on that alternative pathway, which enables you to move out of negative stress and leverage that adrenaline to help you to function at your best. I smile because I see so many parallels again in the way we teach. You're much more articulate in it, but there's a real parallel between our methodology. Stunning. Number one, build awareness. Number two, you're realizing the power to pivot and realign to your goals, to your mission and to your purpose. And number three? Number three is a toolkit. How the hell do we do this? So the toolkit is really, again, leveraging scientifically supported strategies to master your mindset, to master your physiology, and to realign, to move out of the sympathetic nervous system into the parasympathetic nervous system, and to move out of worry into problem solving and action planning, to move out of a discomfort with uncertainty, to acceptance of the things that are out of your control, and many, many other factors in that mind strength toolkit. And even toolkit is the analogy that, that there's different tools for different jobs. A builder will come to your house and charge a lot of money. I think that's where the story is. <laughs> a builder will come to your house and he might have five different hammers. You might need a sledgehammer or a claw hammer. You have lots of different saws. So you don't have one hammer for everything. It's exactly the same with the mind strength method. Here's a toolkit. So sometimes it might be breathing. Other times it might be doing some journaling or some cognitive therapy work that you do. Other times it might be more might be more mindfulness-based acceptance. That's where you can go deep, right? And that's years and years of experience. You have all the tools or a lot of tools to help people. I I believe that's where a lot of people that work with with you, people that work with me and, and our respective businesses, that's a step where they often go wrong because you've got to do the reps and sets. You know, you've got to do practice and practice. Yes. I'll always use the story on fitness. And I've just come off a three-day bike ride. I was riding on day three because day one I felt horrible, Jody. Day three I felt good. 
And one of the guys I rode with, he said, oh, it's your muscle memory kicking in. I said, well, it's actually not muscle memory. It's nervous system memory. But yeah, when you do the reps and sets on a bike, and even if you haven't trained a lot, you go into a three-day bike ride, it kicks in. This is where you need to do the practice, isn't it, in a non-pressurized environment. Because so many clients will say to me, I tried your breathing technique or reframing just before I spoke to a thousand people. That's not the time to train it. Do it in a non-pressurized environment. Yeah, I love that. So, so true. It's kind of about uh, various ways to apply that, to build in that uh, learning and wisdom when it's in that non-pressured environment. We talk about step ladders in a clinical context, step ladders or graded exposure to feared situations, and that's what facilitates your capacity to dissolve the discomfort and distress. So if we take it to a comfort zone analogy, uh, we want to take small steps out of your comfort zone and what we're doing in that is the body adapts, the body habituates to fear and you are in essence creating a larger comfort zone and so you're no longer out of your comfort zone and you're ready to take that next step and that next step. There is something called flooding okay flooding is fuck that i'm just going to jump right in and i'm going to go up on that stage with those 4000 people and i'm going to do my thing and i'm going to just do it now the challenge with that is that can be someone, terrifying someone you know well often <laughs> try this approach well i wouldn't necessarily recommend this approach so but it is something that has been you know in the clinical kind of toolkit let's say is, is, like, uh, is it louise hay feel the fear and do it anyway feel the fear and do it anyway i absolutely adore that because that is the whole concept about graded exposure to feared situations and however there might be let's say a person has a spider phobia sit at a table with a tarantula in front of them and breathe through that and use biofeedback and all of these beautiful physiological tools to bring your stress levels down. And that may work for some. That would be an example of flooding as opposed to, first of all, I'm going to look at that teeny tiny spider on the page of that book and and breathe through it and let my and build acceptance around that and let my stress levels move back down to baseline. Remembering and recognizing that we inherently as humans are still, you know, we, we teeter above zero. We're, we're very rarely in zero stress and also the power of positive stress, eustress versus distress, mm. let's say. The graded stress exposure would be a way to avoid flooding. So we go back to one, exactly. of the, one of the open loops, that person who at school was ridiculed speaking in class and the teacher had a crack at them, so did the kids in the playground. And then they have this fear oh, I'm going to get ridiculed, but that person might go and speak to a staff meeting. They then might speak to a forum at 50, so you'd build it up, not just yes. jump in for 4,000. Yes. But some people, if you're flooded, they jump in for 4,000 and it works. You've saved a lot of time. Well, I mean, I think that we can use evidence-based strategies in a very efficient way, typically. Anxiety, I'm a very practical person. I like to get shit done fast. <laughs> um, and so this is why I love working with anxiety because anxiety is highly responsive to turn challenges around very quickly with the right protocol. But it wouldn't necessarily be flooding that I would ascribe to typically. More yes. toolkits to build resilience. So that's step three. And then number four, you talk about a well-being action plan. I like that because it's not just, hey, here it is, get awareness, 
Now you can pivot. Here's some toolkits. Now go off. Yeah. This is the longevity play, isn't it? You've got a thing called life, and you and I are obsessed about getting people to ninety or one hundred years. So it's healthy in all parts of your life builds a nice framework, a nice foundation. Absolutely right. And so complete and total respect for the power of the body to look after the mind, as well as the power of the mind to look after the body. So step four of the mind strength method is a well-being framework to enable sustainable high performance or sustainable flourishing. And thinking about some of the go-to fundamentals, movement, staying hydrated, good nutrition, getting your effective sleep strategies and doing exactly what we're doing now. Connection with your tribe are the fundamentals of that well-being framework, all evidence-based, um, drawing on you know phenomenal science that we have to say these are the strategies that are going to really help you to flourish and thrive. And one of the most powerful go-tos is movement, is the positive neurochemicals that absolutely flood our bloodstream when we get out there and we move, when we get into nature, when we do the cycling that you do, you know, this is, or whatever floats your boat, right? In terms of that, you can walk around the block instead of, you know, moving, uh, crashing in a heap on the lounge at the end of the day, go to the corner of your block and back. That's already going to change your neurochemistry to boost positive neurochemicals. Thank God for neuroscience because Hippocrates 2,500 years ago carved out what's called the Hippocratic Oath for doctors. It was around whether you go island hopping in the Greek islands for anyone who did a Kentucky tour of my generation. <laughs> and, and roughly translated, his Greek is a healthy mind is built on nutrition and physical activity. Yeah, now, definitely. It, it took us 2,470 odd years later to get the psychologist and the people focus more on the brain talking to my original degree was exercise science and the physiotherapist that, you know, the physios and the exercise physios and PTs, they don't own the body. And the psychs and psychiatrists, they don't own the mind. It's body, brain, brain, body. So they knew it back in ancient Greek times Finally, we've got everyone together. So I love hearing you as a clinical psychologist, but working in neuroscience and teaching and coaching and everything you do, linking it together. It is music, music for my soul, because it's, it's an interconnected, sustainable way of living. Absolutely right. And Did you feel I got on my hobby horse a little bit then? Oh, but I love that hobby horse. I mean, it's just, it's fundamental and it's... It's exceptional when we do have this knowledge and then it's awareness, moving from awareness to accountability to action, right? Um, from I, I talk about from anxiety to action. It's about the awareness when we can understand the logic of this and the light bulb moments when you can say, this is not warm and fuzzy. This is the opposite of you know, woo-woo stuff. This is deep science and deep logic that says these strategies are going to change your life. To summarise the four steps, number one, build awareness of that fight and flight response. Number two is the power to pivot and realign with your goals, your mission, your purpose. Three is the toolkit, all the different tools. You've got to do the reps and sets. And number four is a sustainable wellbeing action plan. Now, for people who want to go deeper, and they should, where's the best place to get your book? Oh, you can get 
my book on my website, which is mindstrength.com.au or any just, good bookseller that's Google out there. Just Google the book. <laughs> We've covered a lot today. Have a lot. This is a reflection piece. We covered, first of all, an introduction around what anxiety is. Then we spoke about your story. Then we pivoted. Oh, I've been using the mind strength plan in action without even <laughs> realizing. Go me. Uh, then we spoke about high-functioning anxiety, and we're going to come back and do that podcast. Let's do that early next year. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about that because as I was thinking, I was just going, there's so many people I work with, and I hadn't really aligned that. Your language around it being a superpower is going to help because I, I think of some of these people I'm working with, they they get really fatigued and they're at risk of burning out, so they haven't channeled it as a superpower. And then we spoke about the four-step framework. And you also brought a lot of authenticity and honesty to today. So I wanted to thank you. I know you got deep on some of these topics. What's your takeout from our conversation today? Takeout is the importance of seeking out the help that you deserve and leveraging the wisdom of, you know, good people working together and, yeah, just existing in hopefulness when there is so much negativity and stress, negative stress out there. We, when we can start to tip the narrative into solution mode and uh, respecting your fundamental needs, then humans can perhaps flourish just a little bit more than what they are currently doing. And we're going to leave it in, but the bit I love from today is when you stepped out of the elegant, eloquent psychologist talking about all the frameworks and said, we're going to fucking take on the world. <laughs> so I, I'm really excited about working together, doing yeah. some, some work with our clients. I'm excited about exploring the possibilities because I think there's a real synergy. For those who want to connect with you to follow you, where's the best place to go? You can jump on theanxietyclinic.com.au or mindstrength.com.au or you can connect with me on social media, LinkedIn. It's pretty easy to connect with people these days. So, yeah. Thank you for today. I've loved it. I've, I've learned a lot. I felt at times that I was sitting in the chair. Like I mentioned, it felt like I was going, <laughs> going back and saying, forgive me, Father. You've brought a real science, but a real warmth. And, and I've loved our conversation. Thank you. Fantastic. I've loved it too. Thank you so much. Hi, it's Thomas the Wizard and welcome to another PQ and you. Andrew's on a bike uh, raising money with Can for Cancer for the next few days, so I'm taking the reins on this one. Today's guest is Tim Hughes, a longtime podcast listener and former client of Andrew's who, along with his colleague Gene Tunney, recently in interviewed Andrew on their podcast, Economics Explored. So I'd say check that one out. It's fantastic. And today, Tim's here to return the favor. So Tim, how's it going? It's going well, thank you, Thomas. Uh, thanks for having me, on, having me on. No worries. And I just wanted to start, how did you meet Andrew? Um, I met Andrew, it was around about 2008. I was a personal trainer at the time, a new one. And uh, Andrew was putting on some workshops. Um, so that's how I met him. And uh, yeah, it was great. It opened my eyes to a whole new area of possibilities of where the health industry was going and what role you could play in the future of it. And uh, yeah, so he really opened my eyes to bigger and better things. So I was talking to Andrew about you earlier and he said that you've done a bit of coaching with him. Yes. What, what sort of things have you taken away from his coaching? What, what did you guys talk about? What have you changed since then? 
I learned a lot at the time. You know, I'd love to say I was the perfect student and uh, and nailed everything that he showed me. And of course, um, being human, I took a lot from it. But um, I went on to, he's funny, he revisited me. Uh, his words would come back to me every time I'd make a mistake. And uh, I, I knew what Andrew would have said. So he was sort of on my shoulder uh, for many years after our coaching. But um, yeah, so th- through his books, so he had to flip the switch at the time. Uh, I'm I'm a big fan of that reference material. I don't take everything in on first bite, so um, it's uh, I found having that as a reference point was really good. And so yeah, it just sort of spurred me on uh, to try a few different things. Had a PT studio, had a gym, and and they're the kind of things that I think Andrew was really advising against at the time. Uh, so the, they were the sort of things where you know, in hindsight, I um, I appreciate uh, even more his wisdom. And uh, yeah, so I was really, um, really pleased to see that he started a podcast and uh, have been an avid listener. And so he's he's come back into uh, my, my sphere, if you like, um, through his podcast, which I've really enjoyed. You know, I've had different people, you know, who sort of like have been in, in that kind of mentor position. Uh, but certainly, I think Andrew was um, the, the best one that I came across. And I've been working solo for 18 years or so. And you don't always have the ability to uh, pay for the coaching as well, or you're not the ability. You know what I mean? Like it's one of those things where you have to sort of like try and make everything fit, and so it's not always in the budget. But uh, certainly through the podcasting, like um, you know, it's one of the things I've really enjoyed about being able to pick and choose your education um, that's at your fingertips with all of this technology that we have now. Um, and so, yeah, it's been really good having Andrew back in uh, back in my ear. Well, I have to say, as the uh, podcast editor, he's definitely in my ear most of the day too. <laughs> so, speaking of, you've been listening to the podcast sounds like for a while now. What's been your favourite episodes? What have you enjoyed listening to so far? Um, I've got a lot. One of the things I was going to say with that, um, with Andrew, for instance, having known him, and uh, you know, so there's a level of trust that I have with him. So every single time you have a guest on. Even if it's somebody who I might not have normally have chosen to listen to, I've I've gone with it, and every time I've got something from the episodes, uh, the episodes that have gone up. So I've really enjoyed being exposed to people who I might not have normally have listened to. But some that have stood out. There was one just recently, actually, um, uh, MBS Michael Bungay Stanier, uh, yeah. yep. who I hadn't heard of. I mean, this is you know, like uh, it was it was a new introduction to me, and it clearly he's been around for some time and done a lot of really good things. But I, I loved that whole approach, which that's one of the things that I've stopped stopped off in in my past was trying to give too much advice. You know, it was one of the things which is a, a go-to. And so it was really good to see some framework around giving less advice and listening more and asking the, the right questions. So I, I got a lot from that. And I think actually it's a good example of that's the kind of book that I would got one on order um, because that's a reference book. It's the kind of thing that you don't absorb straight away. You you have to really um, delve deep into those kind of you know that, that wisdom to fully absorb it and to be able to adopt it into a practice. Um, so I'm looking forward to getting hold of that book and understanding his principles even more. But yeah, I really I really got a lot from that. In fact, one of the things like because with the podcasts that I've listened to over the last five years or so, I've really enjoyed the ability to sort of create your own curriculum. And um, I've learned about the Socratic method, which sort of goes hand in hand with uh, MBS's questioning techniques, I guess. 
um, where it's an approach where you can sort of encourage critical thinking. Um, so I saw parallels with that. And um, it's, uh, yeah, so it was very reassuring to see these things sort of like support each other and coming from the same kind of space. So yeah, MBS was great. Uh, and also, um, I have to give a, a shout out for the Gemma King episode, which was fantastic. The performance under stress, I think everyone can sort of associate with at some point, you know, either through the, the training that you do or um, for yourself, you know, to be able to apply it to um, high pressure situations that you find yourself in. I uh, really enjoyed that. And also the uh, the intro was just, uh, it was such a fantastic intro. I still, it still brings a smile to my face when, when um, I think about that intro, which is just pure James Bond. It was great. Oh, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure they made a movie quite similar to her intro. I don't know, maybe she gets, <laughs> she uh, owed some royalties on that one. It's like a Mission Impossible sort of like uh, intro. Yeah. It's still it's one of my favorite yeah, intros to any podcast. I think I found some footage for for one of the videos, and it's it's actually insane. And to think that she was right there, just sitting sitting, you know, looking out a window, and oh, they're just shooting a, a tank at one of the Parliament buildings. In fact, um, I have to say, regardless of whichever podcast I've listened to, it's uh, it's the one that stands out as being the most rock and roll intro I think I've ever heard. So yeah, that was great. <laughs> Yeah, I think it'll be hard to top that one with Gemma. What else have you seen either in, in your personal life or your professional life have you changed uh, since listening to the podcast? I think the biggest thing, I mean, one thing that comes over and it's not particularly uh, with one guest as such, but it's a recurring theme, certainly on uh, Andrew's podcast, is um, we're not perfect, like we're imperfect, we're going to stuff up and it's okay to fall flat on your face. And you now learning about imposter syndrome and all of these things and it's encouraging like you know i say i've been working for myself for 18 years and so one of the great things about having access to these kind of podcasts and these people is they do sort of become like your team members in a way they're like they're on the board of you know support and, it, and it's just good to hear because everybody has those moments you know when you, you have self-doubt or you're not too sure if you're on the right track um, and just hearing other people's um, experiences of you know picking themselves up and going again it's really encouraging and inspiring and um, and knowing that you are going to fall over, you know, if you're going to try and achieve something, you know, get outside your comfort zone that that's going to come with a price and it's okay. I feel really good after listening to the, the podcast in that area. Uh, I always get a boost. It always feels like this forward motion going from any of the episodes. You now there's, there's a, there's a positive outlook to all of them, um, which I, yeah, I find it really sustaining, you know, it's, it's got sustenance to it. Awesome. Thanks. That's that's actually really encouraging to hear as someone who uh, works on the podcast. It's it's really good to hear this sort of thing. We do get feedback, but yeah, nothing nothing like that so far. So that's, that's actually fantastic. And that's actually uh, made my day, I think. That was, that was great. Thank you. Well, no, no, you won't. I mean, like, I've got, um, it's funny, I've got three kids, like they're teenagers, um, you know, so slightly older kids. And so I often have this technology um, in its current form is still very new. So the, you know, the ability to be online 24 seven and all of its attractions and everything is very hard to resist. And so I talk about it to them when they will listen to me. Um, <laughs> but I talk about it in terms of nutrition. Uh, because that's how I feel about it. And so, you know, you, there's so much good stuff on the internet and there's a lot of stuff that is not so great. So if you look at it in the terms of nutrition, you know, you can get 
great nutrition from good education and you know learning something and sort of like you know expanding your knowledge base and i see the podcast that you guys do definitely as something nutritious you know i get uh, uh, i get a lot of nutrients from that as opposed to donut time which is you know the cat videos and all that kind of stuff which there's a place for it and it's fine you know uh, but it's just getting that balance right and i get so much nutrients and um uh you know sustenance from podcasts like yours and andrews and um so many others and it makes a massive difference and uh, i think again especially when you work largely on your own that uh, it does feel very supportive but it's always a bit getting pointed in the right direction you know and it's I, i've appreciated um you know the times when people have opened up now andrew's opened up that's been really great as well you know like uh it, it takes courage to sort of open up in those ways and that's also very inspiring you know to um to see that happen and um uh, i think it encourages you to be braver yourself as well so yeah it's uh, nutritious <laughs> i think we'll take that tagline australia's nice. most nutritious podcast we'll put that in all the marketing from now on <laughs> yeah. that's great yeah, they, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure it's not beyond Andrew to do a Krispy Kreme episode every now and then, you know. But uh, I'll leave that with you guys. <laughs> uh, that's amazing. Thanks. I'll. Um, oh, I've never heard that analogy before. I love it. It's so good. Yeah, I have to say, like, um, it hits home for me because I'm aware. For instance, you know, we all do it. We all dive into donut time on the internet at times. Like I said, it's what, okay, what are you talking but- about? I've never sat in my bed at midnight <laughs> scrolling on my phone endlessly. No one's ever done that, surely. No, I'm just. This is hypothetical, of course. You know, like, uh, but yeah, it's it it's a reminder to me that it's an opportunity. Like, there's um, you know, a lot of this information would normally be only available through college or university, and we have the opportunity if we're you know if if you have a bit of a clear vision of what you want and. Uh, you know, you will find it. There's great information out there. And um, yeah, you guys represent uh, a big part of that. You, you know, the guests you get in and the scope of who you get in always has a positive impact on on me and my business. You've really, you pumped me up now. I want to go record a, a few more podcast episodes <laughs> and get them out there. <laughs> oh, uh, thanks for dialing in today. It's it's just been great to hear uh, your thoughts on the podcast and, and the content and uh, yeah, just how you've changed things. It was, it was really encouraging to hear. And I'd say if anyone's listening to this and you want to share your story on the podcast, just reach out to us and, and we'd love to hear your performance intelligence journey. Thanks, Tim. Thank you, Thomas. <laughs>